at church this evening. Uh, my name's Steve Frederick. I'm the senior minister here. Um, and uh, we're working our way through uh, the rest of this term, this letter that the Apostle Paul had written to Timothy. Uh, and we'll reflect a bit on that together in a moment. But it'd be great if you had it open there in front of you, because I'm going to refer backwards and forwards to it a little bit as we work our way through it this evening. Uh, and it'll certainly be helpful for me for you to have it open. Uh, I'm sure it'll be helpful for you as well. Uh, on your service sheets on the back, there's a bit of an outline of some of the things that I'm going to cover, a few of the Bible references, there's a QR code at the bottom of the page, uh, and if there are questions that perhaps spring to mind for you from any of the things I say or things in the passage that I don't mention or touch on, things you'd like clarification on, you just can scan that QR code uh, with your phone, uh, submit a question anonymously. Um, it, the earlier you do it, the more chance I'll see it before I jump up again uh, later. But after a song and, uh, and a few other things, I might have a crack at answering any questions if some do come through. Well, as best as I can determine, the phrase law and order was first used by the second president of the United States, John Adams. But it certainly, he certainly isn't the last politician who's tried to give that phrase a good run. The phrase has become something of a predictable mantra for those modern politicians who are anxious to do a bit of civil spring cleaning, to shake things up and clean things up, so to speak, is the language often used. For leaders who at least wish to be seen as being serious in pursuing peace, stability and security for a community. For leaders who wish to give the impression that they alone, perhaps, really take the stability and health of a community seriously. Law and order is often the thing they fall back on as promising to achieve that. But blustering calls to take law and order seriously often prove to be a little bit more than a thinly disguised attempt at a grab for greater control and influence. And of course, the church communities themselves are not immune to such twisted tendencies. Sometimes those of us who present the most spiritually serious front to the wider world outside can actually be the ones who struggle most to actually embody it. And claims for law and order, for shaking things up, can often be an easy resolution to imagine that we're doing something about things that are a bit messy or out of control. So what is the key to promoting a healthy and stable and secure church community? What is the key to cultivating good order in a church community like ours? To fostering genuine spirituality, piety, godliness? That's the central concern that Paul's going to address in his letter to Timothy. How might it be that a church community can enjoy peaceful and stable order? And it's not going to be the law that he resorts to, but something else. Uh, Paul had appointed Timothy to act virtually as a bishop over the various church communities in the city of Ephesus, uh, overseeing the churches and their leaders. Uh, this is a photo of one of the main entryways into the city of Ephesus. There wasn't just one church community in Ephesus, there was a whole series of them, each one with someone who had overseen uh, a smaller local church gathering of people. And Paul has written to Timothy about how he should oversee them. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy concerning 
what seems to have been a bit of a law and order platform of certain spiritual leaders who'd positioned themselves as teachers, as spiritual leaders in these various Ephesian churches. Now, have a look with me at how Paul begins his letter to Timothy as he begins to reflect on how might he bring stability and order to this spread out Christian church community in the city of Ephesus. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1 is where I'll kick off for us. Um, I'm hearing a lot of echoing and ringing. Uh, I'd probably prefer just to, you know, speak more loudly if I need to, Uh, but that'd be great if you're wonderful. Thank you very much. Okay, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And glance down again to verse 7 with me, where he continues on addressing the same people. He speaks of these uh, people who were wanting to be false teachers or were being false teachers. He says, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. They want to be teachers, Paul says, no doubt with something of an exasperated eye roll uh, as he writes the phrase in his letter to Timothy. He's referring to those who have positioned themselves as these teachers, these spiritual leaders in the various church communities of Ephesus. It brings to mind for me perhaps what I just use shorthand, shorthand terming for YouTube pastors, those who think that just because they might have a couple of thousand subscribers on YouTube, it qualifies them to be pastoring the wide world out there in front of them. It seems that there was a similar attitude to those who were leading some of these Christian communities in Ephesus. If you had an opinion, you were well-placed to lead anyone who was willing to listen to you. And Paul says, these folk want to be leaders, they want to be teachers of the law, to teach about things that they really barely have the first idea about. He describes them as being devoted to myths, genealogies, and some distorted version of teaching Old Testament biblical law. Uh, When he speaks about myths here, I think he's most likely referring to non-biblical, that is, things that aren't in the Bible, non-biblical Jewish folk tales that could be twisted into service of their own agendas. Uh, Non-biblical myths about various other stories that they could import their own meanings into and influence the church community. Uh, I was just chatting with Lauren recently about a C.S. Lewis book in which he references one of these myths, these Jewish myths that come from outside the Bible. Certainly not a biblical myth, Uh, One of them was about a woman called Lilith who was reported to be Adam's first wife but who wasn't agreeable enough uh, in following Adam's commands and so Adam had asked for another wife instead and received Eve. They are not biblical myths. Some of them are rather unsavoury but they were stories that were often used nonetheless 
to try and influence and shape the culture and the way in which people acted. It was probably some of these extra-biblical myths that were being used in these church communities. Uh, Then he also mentions genealogies, conjuring up opinionated teachings about what the future might be, grounded in speculative reconstructions about the past. We see this nowadays as well, don't we, that the people who can give the most convincing story about the past often are the ones who claim that they can also tell us about exactly where the future is headed. Probably a similar thing going on amongst these teachers in the church groupings in Ephesus. And then finally, the law. They wanted to be teachers of the law. Chapter 4 of 1 Timothy gives us a little bit of an insight into the twisted kind of way in which these self-styled leaders were misusing and abusing the Jewish laws. Let me read to you um, from uh, chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. I think the passage might come up on the screen, but it's chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. Speaking about the ways in which these teachers were misusing the laws in the Bible, Paul writes... Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with hot iron. They forbid forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Particularly what we see here in this little snippet, this antagonism towards marriage will prove to be a very disruptive and unsettling teaching that will cause enormous grief in the church of Ephesus. We'll see it mentioned and addressed in uh, chapter 2 of our letter to Timothy. And we'll return to explore some of these weird twistings of the law that were going on in further detail in coming weeks. But for the moment, it's enough just to notice that these self-styled spiritual influences were manipulating their teaching of the law to hijack the Christian communities for their own purposes, for their own ends, for their own hobby horses. Uh, Have a look with me at what Paul comments further about how they use the law. Uh, I'll pick it up from verse 7. Verse 7 in chapter 1. We read that they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. These self-styled spiritual influences in the Ephesian churches were misapplying and misusing Old Testament law in order to manipulate the Corinthian communities under their care. They were using the law improperly in ways that it was never intended or designed to be used. Uh, Up on the screen here is a photo of a tuning fork. I'm not a musician, so I hope I get this right. Musicians can kind of correct me if I get uh, myself confused here. But as best I understand it, these tuning forks can be used 
to identify where a voice or an instrument is out of tune with a standard pitch. You hit the fork, it resonates a pitch, uh, and then you can match a voice or a musical instrument to that pitch and be sure that it's in tune with the pitch that it's aiming to be. And yet, repeatedly hitting an out-of-tune singer with the tuning fork isn't going to magically transform them into a virtuoso singer, right? There's a way that you can use it correctly and a way that it just doesn't work. And likewise with the Old Testament law. It was there in order to give us an idea of when we were in tune with God's way of living and when we'd started to depart from it. But it wasn't designed to shape and form the Christian character of the church community itself. And it does raise a question, why this seemingly random collection of specific behaviours that are mentioned in these verses? I mean, how many parent killers should we have actually expected to find attending your average suburban church community in the city of Ephesus? It seems a rather severe and intense sin or misbehaviour to be mentioning. And how on earth does that compare to those who are liars? The, the collection of things addressed here seems perhaps to be a little bit random and con- confusing at one point. Now, Paul hasn't simply lan- la- launched into a random moralistic rant in these verses. Actually, if we were to go back to the Old Testament and look at Exodus chapter 21, I'll put, we won't look at it tonight, but the verses are there on your sheets to have a look at. Verses 9 to 10 are just a dot point summary of Exodus chapter 21 from verse 15 and following. It's a list of concrete behaviours that are out of tune with the Ten Commandments that have been listed in the chapter before in Exodus chapter 20. It's not that Paul was wanting to write an application of each of these particular actions to the church that Timothy was, churches that Timothy was overseeing. Paul's point is simply this, that the proper use of the law was to signal when people are departing away from, are out of tune with God's pattern of living. The law was given in the Old Testament to signal to God's people when they were and weren't in tune with him, not to shape what is good and godly in all its fullness. Paul will say that if we actually want to know what leads to a good and godly life, it's going to have much more to do with the gospel of Christ. The law appoints for us when we are out of tune with God's way of living, but it's not sufficient to give us the full picture of the kind and pattern of living that honours him. Uh, Controversial speculations about folk myths or genealogies or twisted applications of the Jewish law are not going to do anyone any good, except perhaps to raise the public profile of those who aren't qualified really to be teaching anything at all. At worst, tolerating such teaching will simply end up shipwrecking the faith of those who are subjected to it. And we'll see that actually next week, exactly how this pattern of law teaching, twisted law teaching, was ruining the faith of those who were parts of these churches in Ephesus. Now, if I'm ever going to go off the rails in what I teach here at Summerhill Church, it will be Bishop Michael Stead's responsibility 
to pull me back in line. Uh, you might remember a few weeks ago, last year actually, we had Bishop Michael Stead who came along and oversaw the uh, confirmation service in the morning service of a bunch of young men who were confirmed in their faith. He's the one who oversees all the independent church leaders in Anglican churches around the inner west part of Sydney. And it's his responsibility to make sure that those who teach don't just go off on a whim teaching their own, what their own hearts, what their own thoughts uh, really fancy them to teach. And likewise here, Paul is instructing Timothy in verse 3 to command such people to stop spouting such meaningless talk, such self-serving controversy that was marking their teaching. And this command that Timothy is to insist on, it's not just simply about gatekeeping. It's not about just maintaining a monopoly about who gets to teach and who doesn't. The ultimate goal of this command to stop these teachers, to forbid speculative teaching, is described for us in verse 5. Have a look back there with me. I skipped over this verse a moment ago. Here Paul describes the goal of his command to Timothy to put a stop to this speculative teaching. He says in verse 5, The goal of this command, which I've given you, is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The reason Timothy is to put an uncompromising stop to these speculative teachings is out of love for the churches of the city of Ephesus. To promote in the Ephesian churches the kind of love that will grow out of church leaders who have a pure heart a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let's take a moment to just pause and reflect on what each of those are. What will it look like? What does it mean for the church leaders to operate out of having a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith? A pure heart is an undivided heart an unalloyed heart. If we speak about an alloy, what's an alloy? It's when two metals, two different metals, are joined together into one mixture. Paul is saying that a pure heart is a heart that isn't divided between two opposing things. A heart that's captivated, that's wholly devoted to the gospel message of Jesus as saviour is a heart that is a pure heart. A heart that isn't divided between the gospel message of Jesus and a love of money or a love of reputation or a desire for influence or a passion for public recognition. A heart that's not trying to have a bet each way. Promoting the gospel of Jesus when it's convenient but then just jumping on the bandwagon of some other teaching whenever it promises a bigger, more impressive return. Now, if you want to have a look at how that description of a pure heart is used at another point in Paul's writing, I haven't got this on your sheet, you might like to jot it down. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 22. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 22. Where the Apostle Paul says is a pure heart is a heart that is devoted to the service of God's message of salvation in Jesus and not running after other things such as money or reputation or recognition. Timothy is to forbid the kind of speculative teaching that is troubling these Ephesian churches 
For hearts that are divided, hearts that are infatuated with myths or genealogies or manipulative uses of the law will not ultimately produce the kind of love that he wants to see grow in the Christian churches. What about a good conscience? What does it mean to have for church leaders to have a good conscience? Uh, In this instance, a good conscience is one that embraces the good news about Jesus without any deceptively hidden motivations or ambitions. The teacher whose public persona is all about the gospel, but who's really just wearing it as a mask to lend them some kind of religious credibility, their teaching also is going to fail to produce the kind of love that Paul wants the Ephesian churches to be characterised by. A good conscience is one whose declarations match what their convictions also are. And then there's a sincere faith. A sincere faith is a trust in the gospel message of Jesus, a trust in the message of Jesus that's not simply for show, for the outward sake of outward appearances. It's a humble trust that the gospel of Jesus really is the best hope on offer for any who might be seeking peace with God. A sincere trust that there really is no surer place of hope that these teachers could point people towards other than the Lord Jesus, even if they wanted to. If we were to frame it negatively, perhaps we could put it this way. An impure heart is a heart that craves to prove itself right, to use it to see itself honoured, to be hungry for wealth and recognition at least as much as it treasures God's goodness. That's an impure heart. A scarred conscience is one that registers next to no discomfort at all when it embraces values that are blatantly at odds with God's mercy shown in the Lord Jesus. And a fraudulent faith is a faith that is nothing more than a pretense, a mere mask worn to validate their own self-serving teachings. No matter how fine-sounding the words of these teachers in Ephesus might be, unless someone holds to the gospel of Jesus with a pure heart, with a good conscience and a sincere faith, then nothing they will teach will ever ultimately advance God's work, the producing of the goal of love within these Christian church communities. Perhaps you've often heard it said that we need to worry far more about love than we do about doctrine or teachings of truth. And yet what Paul is saying here is, if people are allowed to twist the teachings of the Scriptures to suit their own desires and longings, then the kind of love that they're going to produce is not going to be Christian love. It's not going to be the kind of love that is for the good and the stability and the security of those these teachers are overseeing and looking after. Paul is urging Timothy to hold fast to the faith that has been passed on to him and to these teachers with a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith so that the goal of love amongst these communities might ultimately be achieved. And as we work our way through the rest of 1 Timothy, that's what we're going to be grappling to see, how holding fast to the good news of the gospel of Jesus actually produces loving stability 
amongst the communities that hold fast to that faith. How about we pray? Our dearest Father, we thank you that you have given us in the Lord Jesus a glorious hope of a saviour, one into whose trust we have been called to place ourselves and one another. Father, we long to have safe and stable and secure and ultimately loving communities to be a part of together as a church. Father, we ask that you would guard us against pursuing that stability and that love out of our own cleverness, in our own ways, with our own agendas, but that instead, Father, we might hold fast to the good news of the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus, and that it might be a kind of love that reflects your loving character that flows out amongst us as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.